Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with Eddie House, of course, played on that 2008 Celtics championship team. And just a little bit, of course, he's doing work now with NBC Sports Boston. He's on after every game. So we'll get into the Celtics in greater detail with Eddie House in just a little bit. But we have to start with the Patriots because what a Wednesday at Gillette. This is really incredible. So Fields Yates reports today. Patriots quarterback Mac Jones took about 90% of the first team reps in practice today and will start for the team on Sunday against the Jets per source. My buddy Andrew Callahan from the Herald reported that he can confirm the report that Mac Jones is going to start on Sunday. So this information is out there that Mac Jones is going to be the starting quarterback for the Patriots on Sunday against the Jets. So after practice and after the report is out there, Mac Jones speaks with the media. Mac Jones also, before he goes out there, was taken off the injury report. So we have a report from a local reporter in Andrew Callahan. We have a reporter from Field Yates, who we all know is dialed into the Patriots in the Belichick camp, that Mac Jones is starting. He's off the injury report. Mac Jones is starting on Sunday. But Mac Jones can't say that in the press conference, right? So Mac Jones was asked, hey, have you been told you're starting? We don't really talk about that. He does say that Bill has done a good job being open with him. And he says, quoting Saban, essentially, we have to put the rat poison away. So he's asked multiple times if he's starting. And Mac says basically nothing. He says, yeah, we don't talk about that. Bill's done a great job. We essentially prepare every week like I'm starting. He also said that Garrett Gilbert and Bailey Zappi are also preparing like they're starting, essentially saying we prepare the same way each and every week. So first of all, why can't Mac just say it? It's because of Bill. Bill doesn't want Mac to say this to the media, and I just don't understand why. What is the big fucking deal about Mac Jones saying he's the starting quarterback for the Patriots on Sunday? 
it is so aggravating that the Patriots have to be so secretive about this when we all know the answer is out there. Why can't they just say it? Oh, just a slight digression before I get to Bill here in this whole scenario. Please, we have way too many good reporters on the beat for other people there to be asking dumb questions when there's only one thing people are concerned about at a Wednesday press conference during what was a quarterback controversy the past week and change. Why are we asking questions about the offensive line? Why are we asking questions about Mac throwing the deep ball? He's getting these type of questions in a press conference where nobody gives a shit about any of that. All we care about is, is Mac starting or not? And try to get him to say, yes, I'm starting. Instead of these, nobody cares. Nobody cares about the offensive line right now. Now, this is a question if Mac had been starting all season. Nobody cares about Mac Jones' deep passing game right now. We just care about his Mac starting on Sunday. So I don't know why reporters ask these weird questions during these press conferences. There's a lot of good people on the beat. Let them ask the question if you're going to ask a dumbass question like that. But anyway, so I want to get to... Belichick in his press conference today because his press conference came before Mac Jones's and before the report. So Bill has a presser today and he's asked about who the starting quarterback is going to be on Sunday. We'll see how it goes today. He's then asked, are Mac and Zappi competing for the job? I'm not saying that. We'll talk about that later. Will you tell us who the starting quarterback is tomorrow? Maybe. This is after on Tuesday when Bill is asked, hey, is Mac your starter if he's healthy? Bill said, that's a hypothetical question. So let's see where that is and what that is. I just don't understand why they just can't say it. They just can't come out and say that Mac Jones is the starting quarterback. You leaked it out to Field Yates. Why can't you just say that Mac Jones is your starting quarterback? I, I don't understand what the advantage is here. I don't understand who this benefits, honestly. And the other thing I'd look at is multiple times Bill has done this in the past, where in 2008, if you remember back to when Brady tore his ACL, Matt Castle, of course, started all the games that season. Now, prior to week two, the Patriots were working out, or they were scheduled, I should say, to work out Tim Rattay and Chris Sims. And never happens, right? They never work out those guys. Bill sends them back. He doesn't even work them out. Matt Castle's the guy. So that was a message. Hey, Matt Castle's our quarterback. 2020, they essentially said, hey, Cam Newton is our quarterback because Bill on that Thursday night game against the Rams pulled Cam from the game and he was absolutely atrocious in that game, if you remember. And essentially what happened in that particular scenario is Bill came out not only after the game on Thursday night, but the following week and he said, Cam's our quarterback. So on two separate occasions, we've seen Bill in the non-Brady part of the equation say, Matt Castle's my quarterback, Cam Newton's my quarterback. He can't even say this week that Mac Jones is the quarterback. And it's weird to me because I was critical of the performance of Mac so far this season, like I'm sure a lot of you were. But one of the things that this past week, I legitimately feel bad for Mac. I really do for how this whole thing has transpired. Mac getting booed by the home crowd. And I understand he's a professional athlete and all that. But really, this controversy was created by his own coach. I just really feel bad for Mac, the guy right now. And you can tell that sort of the locker room has that same feeling. Matthew Slater today at his media availability, if you will. I think he's done a tremendous job of leading this team and how he's handled it. He's been a good teammate through it all. Because of that, you don't get the sense of division or anything like that talking about the locker room right now. And remember, after the game on Monday night, Jacoby Myers had said, I feel bad for him not even as a football player. I mean, it's tough as a man to see somebody who works so hard kind of get that kind of treatment. 
But at the end of the day, we're all trying to feed our families, so we've got to go out there and make plays for whoever's throwing it. Now, he got another question to Jacoby Myers. Hey, you're talking about the coaches. He said not even the coaches, just everybody, the crowd, all of it. It was an ugly situation. So you have players speaking on Mac's behalf. Jacoby Myers saying he felt bad for him. Matthew Slater saying there's no division in the locker room because of Mac's professionalism, because of Mac's leadership. You had Ramondre Stevenson the other night after the game saying we had no idea that Zappi was playing in the game. So that just points out to me that you have guys that are legitimately feeling bad for Mac Jones right now. And the one benefit I would say from all this, and there's not a lot of benefits from what happened, I'll get into that in a second here, is clearly Mac Jones has the locker room, which is very important because in any one of these quarterback controversies, there's usually a divide. Clearly right now, there's not a divide. The locker room is backing Mac Jones, even if maybe the coaching staff wasn't the entire season. Certainly the locker room is, which is a good thing. So this is the other part of the equation to me. How did Monday night, now looking back at it, how did that help Mac, right? Because A, he played like shit, and B, he didn't get a chance to play out of that and shake off the rust. Like, really, what did you accomplish by Mac Jones playing in that game on Monday night? There was no real benefit in that whatsoever. And the one thing that I sort of look at right now in terms of what happened on Monday night, looking back at it now, I don't believe the decision that Bill made had anything to do with health whatsoever. What I believe happened in that game is what we saw Mac Jones do through the first three weeks of the season is he had a propensity to turn the football over and whether or not that ball really like hit off the camera, whatever that thing was the other night or not, Mac Jones made a poor decision trying to ball, th- trying to throw the ball to Jonu Smith. So what happened, at least from my perspective, my take on the situation is essentially Bill thought that Zappy that particular night gave the Patriots a better chance to win the game, and we would find out that was not the case. Because Bill, after the game on Monday, said the reason he didn't go back to Mac was because of the fact that the score got out of hand. I don't buy it for a second. I believe what happened is Bill pulled Mac, and he believed that Zappy was going to win the football game. And after the first two series, it looked like that was going to happen because Zappy had the Patriots going down the field. They take the 14 to 10 lead. So I believe what happened is Bill thought Zappy was going to win the game, and he doesn't pull him because he's still sticking with his decision to say, hey, Bailey, go win us the game. And Zappy couldn't get it done. And instead, now what you have after the game is a massive controversy. So Bill, when he's talking about the fact that after the game that The reason they played two was for health. I don't buy that for a second. If the Patriots came out and they were up 21 to nothing and Mac was the quarterback, Mac would have played until garbage time. And they would have gone with Mac and Mac would have continued to play. He made the decision because they were not clear on who the quarterback was going to be going forward. That's my take on the situation after now what we've heard over the past couple of days. But they're not helping Mac right now. The guy's doing a press conference on a Wednesday afternoon when he knows he's the starter and he can't say it. I mean, what is that? It's a complete joke. Now, another thing to me that sticks out here is what happened to Zappi was Zappi. And look, fourth round pick, the guy goes out there, he wins you two games. Give the kid a ton of credit. I was hyping him up. I love what he did for this team. And it's nice to know that you have at least somebody that can come in and fill in for Mac if he gets injured again, right? But what happened to Zappi the other night is he got exposed. So this is part of Belichick's bet that Zappi was going to get them to win that football game. Zappi got exposed. If you look at it, play action versus non-play action, pro football focus documents all this. So 
play action the other night, Zappi was two for two for 73 yards, one touchdown, and a perfect passer rating. No play action, 12 of 20, so 60%. The two interceptions, he had a 35.8 passer rating. Horrible, right? On the season now, Zappi, non-play action, 65.2% in terms of the completion percentage, one touchdown, three interceptions, the two we talked about on Monday night, 5.6 yards per attempt. That is almost impossible. That number is so low. It's almost impossible. And a 66.5 rating in non-play action situations, the only quarterback that has attempted at least 60 passes that is worse than Zappi in non-play action situations in terms of the passer rating is Kenny Pickett. That means guys like Zach Wilson, Davis Mills, and Baker Mayfield are better than Bailey Zappi in non-play action situations. So what happened is, yeah, when you can scheme it up for Zappi, he was really good in play action. He was 20 of 23 on the season, 17.2 yards per attempt, four touchdowns, zero interceptions. So he was really good. And the gap between his completion percentage, play action, non-play action, 21.8%, that's the second largest in the NFL behind only Trubisky. So basically what we found out is, yeah, it was more about scheming things up for Bailey Zappi than it was about Zappi individually. And give Patricia a lot of credit for that. And give Zappi some credit too, because not many fourth round rookies can come in and do what he did. But what we're finding out now is the Patriots are going back to Mac Jones because what they believe is Mac Jones is the better quarterback. Now, another thing that looks bad is Zappi did his weekly spot on WEI this week. And ordinarily, it would be Mac Jones, the starting quarterback, but Zappi did it again this week. So he said on that interview with the afternoon show on WEI, he said that the play calls were the same for him and Mac. So this one to me makes no sense, right? And this looks bad for Bill. I think what happened here is unintentionally, Zappy made Bill look bad because he said the play calls were the same. Now, RG3 on the Monday Night Countdown was saying they're the same guy. Even if they have similar talents, one guy is going to have a preference to a certain play and another guy is going to have a preference to a different type of play. And the fact that they went into the game and essentially the plays were the same for both players, it doesn't make any sense. You want your quarterback to feel comfortable with the plays that are being called. And that was not the case in the game on Monday night. And the other issue with Zappi on that availability, and I appreciate Zappi, like when he was on that EEI interview, because he's not polished, so he doesn't realize he's screwing up when he does. So he was asked if he got enough first team reps, and he said, Bill doesn't want us to talk about that because Zappi stepped in it after the game on Monday night. So he's realizing, oh, I can't say anything of that. But by him saying that he doesn't want to talk about that in terms of the first team reps. Essentially what he's saying is, no, I didn't get enough first team reps. So that makes Belichick look bad as well, because if you were planning that Zappi could come into the game that early, he should have gotten more of the first team reps during the practice throughout last week prior to the Monday night football game. So this is just a complete clown show in terms of everything that has transpired going back to last week with the quarterback situation. And it just felt like this is a bad situation for the team. And the thing that is still perplexing to me and still confusing to me and really dumbfounding to me is Bill created this problem. He really did. Like you didn't need to have your first round quarterback getting booed by the home crowd and then not letting him play out of it. And this week, you didn't have to not say that Mac is a quarterback. Just come out this week and say that Mac Jones is the quarterback. I don't understand why they can't say this. Mac Jones is up there. He can't even say that. To me, it just, it makes no sense and it benefits nobody that they won't say that Mac Jones is the starting quarterback. Okay, so I want to get to, because this was bizarre this week, 
I want to get to my favorite odd press conferences or press availabilities over the past 15 years or so in a second here. But I do want to get to this because the boss tweeted out something about Jake Bailey. And so I got to do a metric man breakdown. I bust these out usually during the baseball season, but I got to break down this Bailey situation because we think of the Patriots as this great special teams group over the years. Last year, they were bad under Cam Accord, and they're having issues again. And this is with Jake Bailey, right? I mean, we've seen in the return game, Marcus Jones has been really good, but Jake Bailey on kickoffs has been bad. But even more importantly, in the punting game, he has been absolutely horrible. So Bailey this season in net punting, 35.2 yards. That's 32nd out of 32 punters, okay? Dead last in net. On average, he's 43.1. That's 31st out of 32. How about inside the 20? Pro Football Focus documents these. 10 inside the 20, that's tied for 18th out of 32, so below average there. How about hang time? This is via Pro Football Focus as well. 4.15, that's 32nd in the NFL. So again, last. Touchbacks, four. Tied for the second most which you don't want to do on punts. You want to do that on kickoffs. So Bailey has been an issue for this team. Yes, you've had some production in the return game, but Bailey, in terms of the special teams, has really hurt this team. And I don't know what happened to this guy. This guy used to be a really good punter, and now he blows. He's just not a good punter right now. They have got to figure out this situation with Jake Bailey. Okay, so... I do want to get to my favorite odd press conferences over the past 15 years or so. So obviously this one today, and really you can combine everything that transpired this week, the zappy Max situation with Bill, where he won't answer any of the questions, that's going to be up there, and that's how I kind of thought of this. So let me get to the other four. Wes Welker's press conference, that was amazing. Now remember, this was when the Patriots are getting ready for the Jets in a playoff game after it had been revealed that Rex Ryan had a foot fetish. Some of the comments from Welker, it's a playoff atmosphere and you can't just stick your toe in the water. This is what you spend all year getting ready for and you want to go out there and put your best foot forward. On Darrell Rivas, he's got great feet. He moves around well and he does some good things out there. On Dion Branch, he's another guy with great feet and he can really move around. On preparation, we're really moving forward and we're going out there being good little foot soldiers. So, and he went on and on and on, but those are some of the favorite quotes from that press conference. And remember, Bill then benched Welker for the first series, which I still understand it. Why would you bench the guy for the first series? And ultimately the Patriots, and I'm not saying they lost because of this, but they would lose that playoff game to the Jets. But that was absolutely hilarious that he went out there and he gave all those quotes. Now, the problem was the Patriots lost the game. And I still don't understand why Bill had to bench him. If you're going to bench him, like, why didn't you actually bench the guy? What did Wes Welker learn in terms of getting benched for one series? And this whole idea, remember the Bill quote, we do what's in the best interest of the football team, just like he didn't do that on Monday night. He certainly didn't do that to Wes Welker because what was in the best interest of the football team was Wes Welker being on the field because at the time he was the best slot receiver of the NFL. Okay, another interesting press conference, awkward one was Brady. In 2000, and Brady's got a couple of these, but remember in 2019, Brady didn't have a contract extension and he had just come off this thing called the Super Bowl. They won the Super Bowl and he wanted a contract extension. Remember that was the whole shit. They give him the breeze thing. So Brady is asked by the media if he thinks he should get a contract extension. He says, have I earned an extension? I don't know. That's up for talk show debate. What do you guys think? Should we take a poll? Talk to Mr. Kraft. Come on. And this is when we started to feel like, oh, maybe it's not just 
the Brady-Bill relationship that's starting to break down. It's actually the Brady-Crafts because what Brady knew the whole time is when Belichick could, he would move on from Tom, right? If he thought it was a better option, if he thought Tom was getting old, he would. But what Brady never thought what would happen is Robert Kraft would turn on Tom Brady. And Robert Kraft didn't step in because remember, famously, Robert Kraft was taking care of a lot of the Brady contracts, but he didn't this time. He sided with Bill. And remember, Brady got that weird clause in the contract where he can't franchise him. And that's when we would start to think like, oh, shit, Brady may actually leave. He may actually go to a different team in the offseason, which, of course, ultimately he went to Tampa Bay. But the point with this one is this sort of indicated when that fracture in the Kraft-Brady relationship sort of happened. Remember, Kraft unfairly was calling up Stephen A. Smith during a break on first take when Brady had decided to leave the Patriots, and he was saying that if Tom wanted to be here, he would, which we all know that wasn't true. Yeah, okay, on your terms, he would have been there, but not on his terms. So it was completely fabricated, or not fabricated, but it was unfair to Tom when he's, and that looked pathetic when Kraft was calling up Stephen A. Smith, because we all know what it was. Brady was never given the extension that he ultimately wanted. So it wasn't Tom's decision. The Patriots pretty much shoved Tom Brady out the door. Okay, the other one, and this wasn't in a press setting, but this was something that Brady said to the media. Al Michaels during Sunday Night Football said that Brady told him he was the most miserable 8-0 quarterback of all time. And again, this is the last Brady season, 2019, where remember, Antonio Brown went crazy and the Patriots only had him for one game. Brady had nothing really to work with offensively as it pertains to weapons with the exception of Edelman. And by the end of the season, Edelman was completely banged up. The guy was playing really injured. And really, that was Edelman's last good season because in 2020, he was dealing with that knee situation. He was also dealing with a shoulder issue that year as well. But that was like, okay, the defense is really good. The boogeyman defense, which ultimately would break down by the end of the season. But Brady didn't have enough to work with. And really, this hurt Brady's market in the offseason. Because think about who was interested in Tom that year. It was basically the Chargers, the Raiders, the Titans wanted to keep Tannehill, the 49ers, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan watched every Brady play from 2019 and decided they were better with Jimmy Garoppolo. So because Brady didn't have a great season statistically in 2019, he didn't have the market that you would think the greatest quarterback in the history of the game would have. So that was the start of, again, the end for Brady here with the Patriots. Not the start of it, but that was another signal that he was just frustrated with the lack of weapons. And remember, he had Nikhil Harry. They traded for Muhammad Sanu. It was just a mess that year. Okay, and then the other one in terms of the most awkward, weirdest, best press conferences over the past 15 years or so is Bill with Deflategate. I mean, that's the ultimate, right? He has the impromptu press conference on Saturday to address the issues. And he says, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert in footballs. I'm not an expert in football measurements. I'm just telling you what I know. I would not say that I'm the Mona Lisa Vito of the football world as she was in the car expertise area. That's what Bill said. I mean, just a remarkable reference from Bill. And secondarily, the fact that this crap was out here was such a joke. And you had the Wells report. Remember reading the Wells report? It took forever to read it. And there was nothing in the Wells report whatsoever. And they still suspended Tom for four games. And it was upheld not because the proof was there, but because Roger Goodell ultimately had the power to have that suspension. The one good thing about the deflate gate suspension. I still contend that 2016 was Tom Brady's best season. And I know he's won MVPs in other seasons. He should have won it that year. They gave it to Matt Ryan. Brady lost one game that entire season. 
It was against a really good Seattle Seahawks team. And we all know what happened, the 28-3 game, the run they had going to the postseason. But that, I still contend, was the best year that Brady ever had. And all Roger Goodell did by suspending Tom and the Ravens for telling the Colts and the Colts for putting this stuff out there to the NFL, the Wells Report, etc. All that did was fucking motivated Tom Brady. And he just went scorched earth on the NFL that season. But this press conference this week kind of reminded me of some of the awkward press conferences we've had throughout Bill Belichick's tenure with the Patriots, Brady with the Patriots, and Wes Welker, of course. So it was just a reminder that, man, when things get weird here, they get really, really weird. All right, coming up next, we're going to chat with Eddie House about this Celtics team. And of course, we'll go down memory lane, ask him about Kevin Garnett and that 08 Celtics championship team as well. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Be sure to tune in to NBC Sports Boston Celtics pregame live to check out Eddie House and Amina Smith and the NBC Sports Boston broadcast team. Tune in to pregame live this Friday at 7 p.m. and stay with NBC Sports Boston to watch the Celtics take on the Cleveland Cavaliers. And joining us now is Eddie House. Eddie, thanks for taking the time, man. We really appreciate it. Man, anytime, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so hey, let me start with this because, of course, you're going to be on pretty much after every game this season. And I know you've done some work with Kendrick Perkins in the past. Was there ever a moment, Eddie, where you're like, Perk, what are you talking about, man? Because he's got some of the most outrageous takes. Well, I think that's just him. Um, and some of them aren't outrageous. A lot of times, I think more so than being outrageous, they're kind of calculated. And at the same time, like talking about John Moran at first, you know, everybody wasn't giving him John Moran as much credit as he is now getting. And Perk, and, uh, even with the Memphis Grizzlies, Perk was one of the first ones to jump on that train. So I think that he looks at it. He understands the game of basketball. And I think that what he does is he finds the outsiders who are going to become the insiders. And he tries to jump on that first. And he does a great job doing it. One, one thing that does tell me is that He's doing his homework, and it's not something that he's just throwing out there and want to be hot takey. He actually wants to be right doing it. Yeah, he does. He, he does have some really good takes, but once in a while, I'm like, I heard his take about Russell Westbrook and Patrick Beverly being the best defensive backcourt in the NBA. I'm like, okay, that that one may be a little bit crazy, but on paper, it looks it looks good because they both are really good defenders, right? So it, it's not like that bad of a take when you think about like what they really Patrick Beverly. He's known for defense. Russell Westbrook has been playing really, really good defense his whole career. So you would think that, that, yeah, it will come together. It's just not coming to fruition. And trust me, I'm not losing any sleep over the Lakers looking bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad with that, too. It is nice to see the Lakers struggling this season. So, hey, going back to 08 for a second before we get into the Celtics uh, this season. So that story, that epic story is out there that KG, of course, beat. Glenn Davis, Big Baby in an arm wrestling contest. Did that really happen or did Big Baby let him do it? No, that really happened. Big Baby was running through everybody. Anybody, nobody really could have 
And KG was like the last person, you know, and everybody wanted to see it. So it got hyped up and he was like, you know what, I'll do it. And he just turned him over, you know, over. I I don't know if, you, if you're old enough to remember that movie over the top, but that's how it was. You know how Sylvester Lowe just, ah, that's how he did it. Man. He just went over the top with it. So did he, did he go against Leon Poe first or no? Yeah, he went wow. through everybody. He went through everybody. And Ticket was the last one. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, so speaking of KG, I remember 2009. Of course, you guys win the championship in 08. And it did feel like 09, maybe it's because you guys had the year together already. You guys were even better in 09. And then KG goes down with that knee injury. And you guys got back to the finals, of course, in 2010. But 09, the Dwight Howard-led Magic make the NBA finals. Like, you guys are definitely winning a championship in 09, right, if KG doesn't go down? Well, hundred percent. I believe that that's, that was our missing piece. Not only what he did defensively, but he definitely was a, a present offensively, not even with, with the pick and pop game. But then if we needed to get the ball, slow the game down and play, we could play through him because he's such a gifted player. Like he can score and he could pass and he makes the right reads and he's going to command a double team. And when you have the shooters around on the perimeter, once that ball goes from one spot to the other, say you have me, Ray and Paul out there, I mean, think about that rotation. Every last one of us will sting you and kill you if you give us an open look. So teams were overextended. They would have had to be overextended with him in the post. And that, that was our missing link. In our, and that's what we were missing in, in that um, in that playoff series against Orlando. I mean, we went six games. No, did we go seven games? I think we went seven games with them. Did we go seven or six? Six. I can't remember. Six games. Yeah, we uh we got that one when Big Baby hit the shot in, in Orlando and then uh, – yeah, we just couldn't get it done. We just didn't have enough um, on the defensive end and also on the offensive end. Yeah, speaking of that, you mentioned the lineup with you, Ray, and Paul. And I was going back to that 08 playoff run, and you guys played 80 minutes together, and you guys had an offensive rating over 122 with you three on the court together, which is, I mean, by today's standards, it's still like an outrageous number. And then I was looking at it like the next couple of years, you didn't play a ton of minutes with Ray Allen, but whenever you did, you guys, the offensive rating was 117, which is through the roof as well. Are you surprised that you guys, maybe it was just the era, but it felt like you guys found something with that small lineup with KG at center. Were you surprised you didn't go to that lineup more? Well, like you said, I think it's just the era, the way the game was going. Now it's positionless basketball, so it really doesn't matter if you look like you're small out on the court. Everybody else is small. And, again, a lot of teams just make you adapt to them as as opposed to, okay, we're going to try to be big to match up with the other team because the other team has size. No, they're going to have to match up with us and try to stop us at what, at what we do best. But, um, you know, those numbers that you just yelled out there, I would love for you to uh, – Email me that or, or text me that so I can have that slug so I can shoot out there every once and again. But uh, that was amazing. I think it's just the, the fact that we were all so uh, gifted shooting the basketball. And then I think for me, I'm able to just catch and shoot and do what I do best. But then at the same time, the threat of what I do opened it up for those two guys. It was a lot easier. We know for sure if I'm in the corner, they're going to have that whole side to go to work. You know, they'll be able to go from the top of the key. That whole side, there will be no help coming. The help will be coming from the weak side. And if you understand that and, and that's the, the great players that they are, they understand that they know where they are be able to get exactly where they want on the court to be able to get the shot that they want. Yeah, Eddie, I'll make sure to send over the numbers to you. And 
make sure you forward them to Doc because that game four, <laughs> the, the game four, you guys came back against the Lakers. You hit those two big threes at the end. It was the epic comeback, completely changed the series. That was the lineup. And I felt like looking back at it, Eddie, it's almost like what the Heat did with Chris Bosh a couple of years later, where it's like, oh, this is how everybody's playing now. And now we see just five outlines, but it was Chris Bosh could play the five and stretch the court. I felt like you guys actually had that before the Heat did, but obviously you didn't dig into it as much as they did. But speaking of Ray Allen, was he really like as regimented as everybody says? Because I've heard like he needs to sit on the same seat on the plane. He needs to hit a certain amount of jump shots. Is he the most regimented player that you've played with? I think we all have our regimen and nobody breaks it. Uh, one thing is, is that he is definitely, well, we'll say regimented or maybe superstitious at the same time. Like it has to be the same way every single time, which I think a lot of us are like that. Like if you're going to be successful in something and you find success doing it one way, why would you try to flip it up? Because then you don't have as much success. And then now, now you have all these in your head, like, oh, was it because I didn't do this? But no, he does the same thing. One thing I can say, he works hard. He's one of the hardest workers before the game that I've seen. Like a lot of guys before games just like kind of warm up, get a little lather going, go back in the locker room, chill, maybe have something to eat, and then go out there and go to work where he really puts up like a workout type of uh, – his regimen before the game is, is almost like a summer workout or um, a workout after practice where he's really, really, really going – and that's because he's taking shots that he knows that he's going to get in the game and he has to use that same speed. It's not – Ray was a real jump shooter, leaves his feet. A lot of people are set shooters. He's a jump shooter. So – and coming off pin downs, flare screens. So he was really working hard trying to find uh, – trying to get that rhythm before the game. But, yeah, he definitely was uh, a guy who stuck to the script. Either he was uh, – we know this for sure. He will come out – he will get on the first – he'll be er there early. And then by the time we get there, he'll be sitting in the training room getting taped up reading a book. Yeah, one of the things that impressed me the most about Ray, and unfortunately gets a bad rap here because of how it ended, but when he was with you guys, you look at the big three, right? He's clearly the guy that sacrificed the most, right? Paul still had the ball in his hands a lot. We know KG was kind of the leader, wins Defensive Player of the Year. But Ray Allen, going back to his days with Milwaukee, with the Seattle Sonics, the ball was always in his hand. I mean, it takes a lot to sacrifice like that, what Ray Allen did for that team. Well, I mean, I think everybody at that particular point in their career knew that they were going to have to take some sort of sacrifices for it to work, for it to be exactly what it ended up being, and that's going to a championship. They ended up going to two out of three years and, and losing in the playoffs to Orlando. And between that, um, it was going to take sacrifice. And it was going to take sacrifice from everybody. I mean, I think uh, from top to bottom, even you talk about coaches, coaches are going to have to make some decisions that, you know, it, it – Sometimes it's not the most comfortable, but, you know, the sacrifice, making everybody feel good for the greater good of the team, you have to make those decisions. The same thing happened with all the players. Like, Ticket was going to be who Ticket was, and I think his personality was never going to change. Ray's personality never changed. Paul's never changed. I think we just had a perfect mix of guys who were trying to become who young guys who are trying to figure it out. Then you had guys who were in their prime. And you guys had guys that were entering their prime and some guys that were in the middle of their prime leaving. And then role players that came in. I mean, how big was James Posey in that, in, yeah. in that championship? In that in that game four comeback, he hit so many big threes. Um, and I think that was like our death. We call that our death lineup where we had uh, myself, Ray, Paul, Pose, and Ticket. And that was our death lineup out there. Like, it was really tough for anybody to guard. And we moved around defensively like – 
there was like I'm not the best defender at all. I won't say that on ball defender, but team defender. I was there. I was in the right spot. And I think that we were able to make that work the best that we could. And that was the reason why we came back. I mean, if it wasn't for that, again, uh, Doc at that time sacrificing the fact of I know this is not going to be comfortable. Uh, Rondo been playing. So has Sam. But they're not giving it to us right now. And to go and have the trust to go to me after I've played in two games and say, you know, what, we'll put him in. Let's see if he's ready. And then so all of those things, I think we just had the perfect mix. Yeah, no doubt. That team was so fun to watch. And speaking of like your career, so I was looking it up. The most attempts you had in a season in terms of three pointers per game was 4.2. So I got to ask, like I'm watching Saturday night and the Celtics are playing Orlando. Hauser comes into the game. This guy is just bombing threes. And like a lot of us hadn't heard of Sam Hauser until this season because he didn't play last season that much. So from your perspective, I mean, if you're playing now, how many threes are you getting up a game? Oh, whatever they would allow me to take. I, I I don't I don't try to get caught up in that because you could kind of go crazy. You'll just be like, instead of looking at how many threes I would be getting, then you start looking at how much money you had made. And it's like all that is a fantasy. You know, it's not the reality of that we're living in. What we were living in at that particular time, four threes was a lot. You know, to be a guy that didn't get very many minutes, um, you know, uh, as a role player coming in, maybe playing 20 minutes, 18 to 25, 26 minutes a night depending on how things were going to get up four threes a game. That's, uh, that's pretty solid. I guess you could say that's part of being the trailblazer for where it's at right now. Yeah, no doubt. You see all these guys now coming off the bench and bombing threes, the Patty Mills of the world, et cetera. So looking at this team, obviously Joe Mazzulla is put into a difficult role off the bat, replacing Ime Adoka. Hey, Eddie, have you noticed the gum chewing yet? Like, have you seen anybody chew gum like Joe Mazzulla? Like that's pretty intense. No, I haven't actually really paid attention to the way he chews gum. I've just been watching the games and trying to figure out um, how how well is he going to adapt to calling timeouts, not calling timeouts, when to call the timeout, when to trust your players, when to call the right play in those moments where other teams are making runs. I think in that, that Chicago game in particular, and this is all learning curve from here because it's new. So you'd much rather have him learn early, just like Eme last year. It was such a tough, it was tough sledding early on up until January until everything finally came together. And I think that this team is further along than they were last year as far as team cohesiveness, um, understanding what the goals are and what roles are, roles are being defined as we continue to go. But I think the most important thing for Joe is to understand like that game in Chicago where I'm going to is when they start making those runs, man, burn a timeout if you have to, you know, and if you don't want to burn a timeout, you should have something, a couple plays in your in, in your card that you're going to pull out and say, hey, these are the situations that's going on. We need to get to this right here. And if we execute it, if you don't make the shot, it's okay. But you have to execute the play. And if you execute it and get a good look, you can live with that result. If they come down score, then you burn your time out. Yeah, I'm with you. I was surprised the other day that he didn't pull the trigger quicker on calling a timeout because, I mean, that run just got out of control in the second quarter from Chicago's perspective. Another thing I was looking at in that game the other day is it just felt like, Eddie, to me, the coverage in terms of the pick and roll defense wasn't great, right? I mean, I know now it seems like they're dropping Al more. I don't know if part of that is just because they want to make sure that he's ready for the stretch run, and obviously there's no Rob there, but the numbers in terms of the pick and roll ball handler, the Celtics 26, 27, 30th in terms of just effective field goal percentage, field goal percentage, points. So is that just a matter of that strategy? The guards have to be better getting over those screens or do you think it's a coverage thing in general? 
Well, I'm not a huge fan of the drop, but at the same time, the the, the metrics and the analytics say give up the mid-range jump shot. Well, a team like Chicago, that's where they're eating at. They're eating in the mid-range. So there is where you have to say, okay, analytics makes sense for a certain team. This is not the team that it makes sense for because this is where this team thrives. This is where this team eats. And I think sometimes you can get stubborn and then teams can get stubborn with saying, hey, this is how we're covering it regardless. And I think every game, every quarter, uh, every half, dictates what do you do uh, and, and the way somebody is playing also dictates how you how you're going to cover a particular situation if it's pick and roll side or if it's high pick and roll whatever it is um sometimes you might have to just say hey, let me get the ball out this guy's hands because he has it going and let's force somebody else to make it happen so i think those are all learning curves too and i think they'll get to that i have never been a fan of the drop because i just look at it like they're at, if all the, the screener has to do is just get a piece of the defender and the guy's coming off pretty much clear and is going to take a free throw line jumper, elbow jumper. And I mean, if you got any, if you've been in this league long enough and you can shoot halfway decent, that's easy money. Yeah, well, and too, especially when it's DeMar DeRozan, right, for the Bulls, where that's where he lives. That's what I'm saying that's where he lives. He lives there. Yeah, he's like the best mid-range shooter in the game right now. So that that obviously hurt them the other night. But just looking at Jason Tatum, and I know obviously the Celtics lost on Monday night, but it feels like so far this season, it looks like he's been shot out of a cannon. And obviously, he's first-team All-NBA last year, Eddie, but does it almost seem like, for lack of a better term, there's like this FU to Tatum this year where he wants to get back to the finals and prove to everybody that he's like an MVP caliber player? I think with, with him understanding that he he didn't play well in the finals, all NBA team. So everybody's looking at him like, well, where was that all NBA player in the final? And he had to sit on that and eat that all summer. So definitely to come out, have a chip on his shoulder. I think the whole team should have a chip on their shoulder. I mean, coach uh, Missoula should have a chip on his shoulder for the reason that, Hey, he's a rookie coach. They don't, he, a lot of people don't think he'll be successful. They say maybe he shouldn't even be in this spot. And if it wasn't for email, he wouldn't have a chance, but eventually he probably could have been, but this is a chance for him to prove that. Jason Tatum, again, is to bounce back and say, hey, man, the, the finals, uh, that wasn't me for whatever reason. And sometimes it takes losing and not playing well in big moments for you to become the person that you – we've seen it with LeBron in the first year in Miami where he lost and then came back and won back-to-back. And so I think also with Jalen Brown, we look at, like, he was in trade talks, right, for a guy way older than him, like – that bothers you. Um, Malcolm Brogdon, two teams. You've been on two different teams. It kind of seemed like they are moving on from you. Now you have a chance to come with a championship aspiration, a team with championship aspirations, and an opportunity to really help them. Marcus Smart, have you got it? Have you gotten better? Rob Williams, can you stay healthy? Uh, I mean, I think everybody has. I mean, we talk about. Uh, also, we could just go with with Derek White. He didn't play particularly well in the finals last year. Like, prove that you take a step forward, even with Al Horford. Do you still have tread on the tire? Blake Griffin, the same way. I mean, Peyton Pritchard, what are you going to do? Like, you are, where are you going to find your minutes? So I think this team, not only they embody having a chip on their shoulder, but it is led by Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown because they, they are the leaders. And when you see that from your main guys, I think it's a trickle-down effect.
Yeah, one thing you mentioned, Derek White and Brogdon. So this is one thing I give Joe Mazzulla a lot of credit for early on in the season. I really feel like putting Derek White in the starting lineup has helped him because there's more confidence there. And then secondarily, there's not as much pressure as him to carry that second unit. Now that's on Brogdon. And we've seen Derek White to start the season, Eddie. He's been tremendous. And I, I contend he's like one of the best guys I've ever seen getting around screens. I feel like it's impossible to pick that guy off. He does a really good job when he gets into the lane defending at the rim as a guard. So what have you made of that? move that Missoula made to put White into the starting lineup and keep Brogdon coming off the bench with Rob, of course, injured? Well, I think that with Brogdon coming in off the bench, that's a ball handler, a great decision maker. And Brogdon is a pass kind of first guy. So he is going to be looking to get other guys involved. But Derek White is not as great of a passer as Brogdon. And I don't think White has that much a, a, a better feel for the game. And this is not a knock on Derek at all. I think Brogdon has a better feel for the game to how to create for other, where Derek White knows how to create for himself. So when he's in the with the first unit, he gets the ball. When he's getting the ball, he's getting it from Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and then he could go to work. You know, that's a secondary thing. Well, when he was in the second unit, it was more so like, hey, we need you to do everything, basically make plays and also make plays for yourself and make plays for others where now all he has to do is kind of like just make play basketball and not have to think about that where I think that's where Brogdon brings a little stability to that second unit because he's able to do that. And uh, the the first game against Philly, like those guys were getting pressure. Tyrese Maxey and uh, DeAnthony Melton were picking up 94 feet and you could see it was kind of bothering Derek White at times and it kind of bothered Marcus Smart. And whoever that guy wasn't going, they were passing that and letting the other guy bring it up. Well, when Brogdon got in, they tried to pressure and Brogdon went right by him and made layups. Now they took the pressure off. So I think it, it, it's just a really good balance. And I think Joe Mazzula understood that, that you put these guys in position to maximize what they can do, to be the best that they can be. And, I, and he recognized that. And Brogdon coming in with that second unit definitely maximizes his abilities. And Derek White starting with the first unit, being out there with those guys, it maximizes what he can do as well. All right, Eddie. The other thing is, if you look at the Eastern Conference coming into the season, we thought it was going to be really deep. We saw the Celtics, of course, turn it on in the second half against the Philadelphia 76ers on opening night. But to you, who's the biggest competition for them in the East? Milwaukee is another team that that I'm looking at. Philly is looking disappointing right now. They just don't look like they have any kind of a rhythm to what they're doing or rhyme or reason to what they're doing on either end of the court, which is not a good thing. Um, Brooklyn is a mess. But I'm looking at the Cleveland Cavaliers, man, with Spider Mitchell over there. I know Garland just got hurt. He'll be out for a little bit. But when he comes back healthy, I mean, they have size. They have athleticism. They have guys that can score the basketball. And even Evan Mobley, he can score the basketball. You know, he's not a guy that can't score, but he's a rim protector, rebounder, along with Jared Allen. And then you got, you know, Spider Mitchell, Garland. You got you got guys over there that can play. Um, so I, I'm looking at Cleveland to be a surprise. I, I think Atlanta will have some action. but to me, I feel like it's going to have to go through Milwaukee is probably the toughest challenge um, when it's all said and done. Yeah. I mean, what Giannis did last year in the playoffs against the Celtics was pretty incredible without Middleton. But I can't wait for that game Friday night against the Cavaliers. Hey, Eddie, before we let you go, I mean, we haven't seen the high socks in the NBA in a while. I mean, you had them. Jason Terry had them. A couple other guys in your era. I mean, are they going to come back or what, man? Can you get somebody on the Celtics to wear the high socks? No, they all wearing tights now. So they wear the they wear the uh, things that the leggings underneath. So they, they don't even have to wear any. So everything's gonna be low socks because everything's covered. So yeah, I don't think we'll see them anymore. 
Yeah, it's a tragedy. I used to like that. All right, be sure to tune into NBC Sports Boston and Celtics pregame live to check out Eddie House and Amina Smith and the NBC Sports Boston broadcast team. Tune in to pregame live this Friday at 7 p.m. and stay with NBC Sports Boston to watch the Celtics take on the Cavaliers. We're just talking about that one. It's going to be a fun one on Friday night. Eddie, thank you so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. No problem, man. Anytime. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. We get time to hit a couple of calls. That number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian, this is Cody from Longmont, Colorado. I just want to straight up ask you, who do you think should start at quarterback on Sunday against the Jets? Because it seems like when Mac plays, the offense is just not the same Zappy plays. It seems like when Zappy plays, like the offense just seems to click. I can't really explain why, but that's just the way it has seemed through the first seven games. And so I just want to straight up uh, hear your um, opinion on if you were the coach, who would you start at quarterback on Sunday against the Jets? All right, Brian. We will catch you later. Appreciate it, Cody. So here's the thing. If Mac Jones, if they believe Mac Jones can finish the game, they should play Mac. Because clearly the message they were sending against the Chicago Bears at the beginning of the game was Mac was their guy. So now some of the confidence in Mac may be fractured in terms of the coaching staff. But what we heard was the players were really upset about the whole Mac Jones situation. And if you believe that Mac Jones is your quarterback going forward, you have got to get this guy back out there. Now, if Mac Jones, if Bill doesn't think he can finish the game, like apparently on Monday night, they didn't think he could finish the game. Well, then you got to play Zappy because my biggest thing now is like the preparation week. You have to make it abundantly clear. And look, even if he's just fucking with people out there in terms of the media or whatnot, you have got to make it abundantly clear to the team who the starting quarterback is this week. So if you don't believe right now that Mac Jones can play on Sunday the entire game, give Zappy all the reps because I don't want to do any of this back and forth anymore. Just play one guy and live with the decision. All right, who's next? Hey, Brian. This is Andy from Watertown. Love the show. Learn a lot. I was hoping to get your perspective on why the Pats keep getting gashed by these elite running quarterbacks. I mean, two of our worst games this year against Baltimore and Chicago, we had no answer for Jackson or Fields. I mean, is it scheme? Is it personnel? Is it both? I keep hearing Belichick is no good against running quarterbacks, but that's no answer. Why isn't he any good? This year, apart from Duggar and Judon, who've been great, we seem to have no one who is a threat to stop those guys out on the perimeter. I was hoping we would draft a linebacker who could get after the quarterback, but in that department, we just stood pat. No pun intended. (laughs) Anyway, uh, any thoughts you might have would be appreciated. Thanks. 
All right, Andy, a lot of good points there. So a lot of meat on the bone. Let's start with this in terms of it's a personnel thing with the linebacking core, first of all, because think about this. They just brought back Jamie Collins. Jamie Collins, he's only good with the Patriots. So, okay, like kick the tires on Jamie Collins again. Anytime he goes to a different organization, he sucks. But the reason they're here, and to your point about drafting a young linebacker, here's what the Patriots ran into. They thought Cameron McGrone was going to be that guy where he essentially redshirted last year because he was dealing with a torn ACL, and this year he didn't make the team. So that was a guy that they were banking on. Now, we've been very positive with the Patriots draft because they've hit on a ton of guys the past two years. There is no disputing that whatsoever, and you've heard me. I've praised them for the draft over the past two years and change, but that's one position that clearly they still need help with the linebacking core. So that's the first thing. There is a personnel issue when it comes to that in terms of the linebacking core, and that's why I'm not opposed to them kicking the tires on somebody when we get closer to the trading deadline here, try to bring in a linebacker. But secondarily, what we saw, and actually my buddy Andrew Callahan had a couple of tweets about this, a couple of videos about this as well. What Chicago did is they basically took what Lamar Jackson was doing in terms of the designed runs, and they implemented them into the game plan. So they saw a weakness that the Patriots had. Now, not many teams could do this, right? Because not many teams have a quarterback as athletic as Justin Fields, right? A couple of teams, of course, we know could do it. If the Cardinals really wanted to do that, although you would never trust trust Kingsbury to do that. He just, guy's a horrible coach. But for example, the Eagles, if they wanted to do it with Jalen Hurts, they certainly can. Not that the Bills would need to because Josh Allen has had success throwing the ball all over the Patriots, but Josh Allen could do it. But Justin Fields does have that ability. And what we saw on Monday night is Justin Fields had the most designed runs that he's ever had in his NFL career. It's something that people have been calling for for the past year and a half. Why aren't they running more with Justin Fields? This guy's an elite athlete. He's a super athlete. And what happened is the Patriots really, it appeared they weren't expecting those runs. And even if they were, they weren't able to make the necessary plays in this game. So what happened in this game to me is Bill really got out coached on Monday night. There's really no avoiding that. And that's not to say that he's not still the greatest coach of all time. And I don't expect him to have a shitty game plan for the New York Jets. It's not like I'm saying that. It's not like I'm saying I'm out on Belichick. Don't be hyperbolic about this. My whole point, though, Bill got out coached on Monday Night Football. I don't know how anybody could argue to the contrary there. All right, who's next? This is Ron Semio in Los Angeles, a big Brian Barrett fan. Would love to hear a segment on one of your upcoming podcasts now that Schwarber and Dombrowski are going to the World Series. And we have Heim Bloom and payroll flexibility. Thank you, Brian. Enjoy your work. Thank you very much. I appreciate the kind words. And by the way, well, you're in luck because we're about to do that. The Schwarber-Dabrowski thing is an interesting one. So first of all, the Dombrowski part of this. Dombrowski now has taken four different organizations to the World Series. The Marlins, he won with them. The Detroit Tigers, the Red Sox, we all know he won with the Red Sox. And, of course, now the Philadelphia Phillies. It has got to be a bad look right now, or it's got to be an uncomfortable feeling for Heim Bloom where this Red Sox organization is at based on the guy that used to have Heim Bloom's job. He's going to the Hall of Fame. Dave Dombrowski is. There's no way around that. So <laughs> the Red Sox fired a Hall of Fame executive. I'm not getting into a big Dombrowski thing. I'm not going back to the 19 deadline. I'm just pointing it out. Dave Dombrowski has been really good at his job. And even if you don't want to give him credit for, and basically the Red Sox hid behind this, oh, we got to have a sustainable organization. Oh, really? Well, Heimblum's first year here, he traded away Mookie Betts. They sucked in the COVID year. Then they get Alex Cora back and they're successful. They go to the ALCS. And then this year, 
he miscalculates a bunch of things in terms of the Schwarber thing. And we'll get to Schwarber in a second here. The Hunter Renfro thing. They fucked up a bunch of stuff, including the pitching staff was a complete joke, right? And going back and forth with Garrett Whitlock. Is he a starter? Is he a reliever, right? So none of that really worked out. And when you look at it, the big critique on Dombrowski is, oh, he can't build a farm system. Well, I'll tell you this. And even if you say, well, Dombrowski's not the guy doing all this, he hires the people to do it. He drafted Beckett. He drafted Adrian Gonzalez. He drafted Verlander. He drafted Andrew Miller. He drafted Rick Porcello, really good pitcher for a number of years. He drafted Nick Castellanos. He drafted Curtis Granderson. He drafted Tanner Houck. He drafted Tristan Cassis, and he brought in Brian Bayo. Cassis and Bayo, two of the best three prospects in the Red Sox organization. So he gets the right people to pick out the players. Even if you say he's not directly involved, he is. He's in charge of the organization. He also traded for Max Scherzer, for Curtis Granderson. He got Edwin Jackson in that deal as well, who was a decent pitcher for a number of years. But the thing is, he identified Max Scherzer. He traded for Miguel Cabrera, who won the Triple Crown. He traded for Gary Sheffield when he was with the Marlins. And yes, he had bad contracts. Fielder. Cabrera, who is still on that contract, David Price, as we all know, but he hit on a lot of big deals as well. And he's now taken four different teams to the World Series. Dave Dombrowski was really, really good at his job. And what we've seen, he still is. Look who he brought in this year. Kyle Schwarber, Nick Castellanos. Now, look, I get it. The Phillies, they're not a good defensive team. In fact, they're the worst team to make it to the World Series in terms of defensive run save. They were 25th in Major League Baseball. Ironically, the Red Sox were second to last when it comes to that 04. They were tied for 24th. But he said, OK, yeah, we may not get the perfect fit, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to hit the shit out of the ball. We're going to hit a bunch of home runs. And they're doing that in the postseason. And the big thing to me about Schwarber is just he hits leadoff in this lineup where Bryce Harper hits cleanup. And you think about it. I get the strikeout numbers with Schwarber, but the thing about it is the strikeouts aren't as bad to me because the upside is hitting home runs. He led Major League Baseball in terms of the National League. Of course, Judge led the American League in home runs with 46. So he's also walking this season, or he walked this season, 12.9% of the time, which is 10th in baseball. So even with the bad batting average, the on-base percentage isn't great, you're getting walks and you're getting home runs. And the other thing where Schwarber fits into a postseason lineup and we saw it here last year, when he hits in front of a guy like Harper, when he hits in front of a guy like Devers, he is so difficult to deal with for postseason pitchers because you can't mess around with him. You can't try to get him to chase because he will not do it. He refuses to swing at pitches out of the zone. He will spit on everything. Now, you may strike him out. He strikes out a lot, but there's also a chance you walk him, and we know he can go deep. So it just helps out your power hitters, the Raphael Devers, the Bryce Harpers of the world, and that was a complete whiff that the Red Sox were not more in on Schwarber, especially considering J.D. Martinez is basically done with the Red Sox, you would think. I mean, based on the numbers dropping off last year. Now, there is some stuff to that. But if you look at it going forward, I mean, you really had an opportunity to keep Schwarber here, fit in perfectly with the organization. But the other component to this is you got a lot of pressure on Bloom now. Dave Dombrowski, who <laughs> the Red Sox ownership got rid of, Kyle Schwarber, who they just had and they went to the ALCS. And now those guys are playing for a World Series. Yeah, it can't be comfortable for Heim Bloom right now. The other component to this is there's been some reporting on Rafael Devers in terms of a possible extension of the Red Sox actually actively doing this. Chris Cotillo from Mass Live 
He reported on Twitter that Red Sox assistant GM Eddie Romero is in the Dominican Republic. He met with Devers on Tuesday. According to multiple sources, two people briefed on the meeting described it as more of a regular check-in slash birthday visit. Happy birthday to Rafael Devers more than anything else. Now, it was reported from Janssen Pujols, who works for a Dominican outlet, that the top executive, of course, is meeting with Devers, referring to Romero, a top executive. He said there's no reason, Cotillo says, to doubt that the Red Sox are preparing to aggressively engage in a Devers extension. One team source said, everyone knows we want to extend him. Clearly, you would hope that they want to extend him. If not, I'm going to lose my mind. Cotillo goes on to say, but it's exceedingly early in the offseason. Both sides believe there's plenty of work to do. The last formal offers came in spring training. It wouldn't be a surprise to see another one at any time. Cotillo also went on to say the Sox are going to prioritize a deal this winter, which is great to hear. The time appears to be coming. But he says, my sense is there are other pressing issues. Bogarts, of course, top of the list. The qualifying offers, whether you're going to give one to Evaldi, whether you're going to give one to Waka, JD, etc. Options like Paxton are more pressing right now due to the timing, which makes sense because you still, Devers has another year in terms of Bogarts, of course, doesn't. And you want to get one done with Bogarts now before free agency starts, which happens after the World Series. So the Red Sox should be able to try to get something done with Bogarts now, or at least have a concrete answer one way or the other. So I do understand what Cotillo is saying there. Bogarts has to be first priority, but you have to get Devers done this offseason because I don't want another Bogarts situation going into next season. Remember, the whole thing seemed clunky, and it felt like there was going to be a dark cloud over the Red Sox all season because they didn't get something done with Bogarts, and there was. Basically, leaving spring training, Bogarts is up there at the podium. I felt bad for him. It looked like he was going to cry because what we would later find out, Scott Boris, of course, basically leaked the information that they offered him just one additional year in terms of his contract, and it would have paid him less than Trevor Story on an average annual basis. Bogarts is never going to sign that. Then Bogarts comes out during the season after saying he wouldn't talk about a contract. He said he would, and the Red Sox never went back to him with a new offer because Bogarts said that himself. And then at the end of the season, and hat tip to Alex Gore for doing this, he pulled Bogarts out of a game so the crowd could applaud. Now, unfortunately, it was raining. The Red Sox were out of it. There wasn't a lot of people there, but I did like the gesture from Gore. But the point being, that was a story. Bogarts, it could be his final game at Fenway. You just don't want to go through this again. So get that deal done with Rafael Devers. And the other thing is this. You can't go, Mookie Betts goes, we'll see what Bogarts, his situation is. You can't be in the same situation with Mookie Betts and Rafael Devers. You cannot go into this. You have got to get this done because you want to keep homegrown talent, especially a guy like Rafael Devers. Just to put it into context, since 19, fifth in Fangraphs War, 16.5. Ninth in home runs, 108. 10th in slugging percentage, 532. 591 hits, third. 149 doubles, first. This guy is just turning 26. Yes, some of the years on the contract may be bad, but don't give a shit about that. Give a crap about the first couple of years, the first four to five years of the contract. He's still going to be an elite player in the sport. He improved defensively. Don't have a cloud hanging over the organization again. Get Devers done. Get the contract done because since the Red Sox went to the ALCS last year, all the news has been bad. Get it done now. All right. Sorry. The Red Sox always seem to fire me up. All right. If you do want to leave us a voicemail, 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Keep those coming. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast. And we'll chat in a couple of days.